Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Picky Battles podcast. My name is Carl Rylett and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. This is the 19th and the final part on our series on World War I. The Treaty of Versailles. In previous weeks, I've talked about the fighting in World War I. Late in 1918, one by one, the Central Powers gave up the fight. And finally, on the 11th of October 1918, a German delegation signed the Armistice Agreement to end the Great War. Delegates for a peace conference began to assemble in Paris at the end of 1918. Negotiations were dominated by the British and French Prime Ministers, David Lloyd George and Georges Clemenceau, and the American President, Woodrow Wilson. The defeated Central Powers were subsequently presented with their terms. The French and Americans in particular, however, had different priorities. Wilson sought to create a new world order under the auspices of the League of Nations with the guiding principle of self-determination. The main motivation of the French, meanwhile, was to make sure that Germany was so weakened that it could never threaten her borders again. The peace agreed at Paris consisted of a group of distinct treaties, but the main concern of the delegates was the settlement with Germany embodied in the Treaty of Versailles signed in June 1919. The French demanded not only the return of Alsace-Lorraine, but also the acquisition of the Colrich Saar Basin. German territories on the left bank of the river, Clemenceau argued, should be detached altogether from Germany to create an autonomous state or group of states under French protection to cover the frontier. This the British would not accept, arguing that such a protectorate would be like Alsace-Lorraine, a persistent source of friction. They agreed only to the demilitarisation of the left bank and of the right bank to a depth of 40 miles, with an Allied military presence pending the full payment of reparations. Ownership of the Saar coalfields was to pass to France, but was to be administered by the League of Nations for 15 years, when its status would be settled by a plebiscite. Germany's eastern frontiers presented a far greater problem. The counterweight on which France had relied before 1914, the Russian Empire had vanished. In the east, Clemenceau argued, maximum territory should be taken from Germany, with the building of new nations, both to hold off encroachments of Bolshevism from Russia and also to contain German power. The implosion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire the western part of the Russian Empire created widespread chaos in East Central Europe. Wilson's principle of national self-determination was good in theory, but difficult to apply in the land of such intermixed ethnicities, where racial enmities had been inflamed by war. Any place whose population was mixed and whose ownership was contested saw violent clashes and the suppression of weaker groups. As examples, the German inhabited north and west of Bohemia, 
briefly declared itself a part of German Austria, but was overrun in early November by Czech soldiers, and there was tension in the Adriatic port of Fiume, also known as Rijeka, between native Italians and Croatians. One of the bloodiest inter-ethnic confrontations, writes the historian Alexander Watson, took place in the city of Lvov, in Austrian Galicia, in early November. Lvov had suffered greatly during the war. Russian occupation and food shortages had heightened tension between its three major ethnic groups, Poles, Ukrainians and Jews. The Poles, who accounted for just over half the population, were looking to join the new independent Polish state. However, the Ukrainians desired the city as the capital of a new state of their own. After violent clashes between the two sides, leaving hundreds dead, Ukrainian troops were forced out of the city. Exultant Poles then turned on Lvov's Jews, who had set up their own militia for protection, but had remained neutral. In a three-day pogrom, shops and houses were plundered, women were raped, 73 Jews were killed and hundreds were injured. This violence between ethnic groups and vicious anti-Semitism boded very ill for East Central Europe. Inevitably, no easy agreement could be found anywhere in East Central Europe, with so many overlapping claims of territory between different nationalities. The core of the new Poland was the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, and Russia was in no position to contest its independence, nor the Austrians able to retain their Polish lands in Galicia. As part of the Treaty of Versailles, an area of 51,800 square kilometres, or some 20,000 square miles, was granted to Poland at the expense of Germany. This territory included Upper Silesia, Poznan and West Prussia, areas which had been thickly settled by Germans for generations. Poland was given its promised access to the sea, which could only be provided by giving her the Lower Vistula Valley, whose population was mixed, and the port of Danzig, today Gdansk, which was almost entirely German. That involved dividing the main part of Germany physically from East Prussia, which was widely regarded as her historic heartland. The Germans never concealed their intention of reversing it at the earliest opportunity. In addition to accepting these losses, Germany was required to disarm, to surrender her overseas colonies and to pay heavy reparations to her victorious enemies. Her army was reduced to 10,000 men, deprived of offensive weapons such as tanks and a navy building restricted. Germany also lost her colonies, and the powers that acquired them did so as mandates on behalf of the League of Nations, rather than directly. The implications of the combined demands on Germany were denounced by the economist John Maynard Keynes, who argued for a much more generous peace, not out of a desire for justice or fairness, these are aspects of peace that Keynes does not deal with, but for the sake of the economic well-being of all of Europe. Especially contentious was the justification given for imposing reparations on Germany, her alleged responsibility for causing the war in the first place, when in all fairness blame could be shared to some extent across all major powers. A narrative developed in Germany that they had been deprived of victory because they had been cheated by the Allies over the armistice terms, and they had been, quote, stabbed in the back, 
unquote, by internal enemies. After the armistice was agreed, the German state fell apart. The army had almost ceased to exist, leaving a dangerous power vacuum. The political factions of the left fragmented, and when the communists took to the streets during the Spartacist uprising of 1919, they were countered with devastating brutality by the unofficial Freikorps, made up of servicemen bound together by their military past and an adherence to right-wing politics. By the time the German Weimar Republic was formally founded in August 1919, it was in dire trouble. Racked by raging inflation and economic turmoil, Germany would spend the 1920s torn apart by competing visions of left and right-wing ideologues. In the end, the right won with the advent of Hitler and the Nazi Party. At the Treaty of Versailles, the Italians were hopeful of major territorial gains, as agreed with the Allies in the Treaty of London, 1915. However, Woodrow Wilson's insistence that the readjustment of the frontiers of Italy should be affected along clearly recognisable lines of nationality were a great source of disappointment. The Italian Prime Minister, Vittorio Orlando, and Foreign Minister, Sidney Sonino, were intent on acquiring a large chunk of Dalmatia on the Adriatic coast, even though its population was almost entirely Slav. When he could not get his way, Orlando walked out of the conference and waited in Rome for his allies to offer concession and to implore him to come back. As the other delegates shared the view that Italy had contributed little to the conference except in discussions about its own borders, they were content to let him stay there until he decided, somewhat sheepishly, to return. Wilson had already agreed to let the Italians have South Tyrol, a decision he later regretted, but he refused to concede Dalmatia, which was granted to the new Yugoslavia. Since Italy did not receive everything it wanted, its people were encouraged to believe that it had done badly out of the war, that it had been betrayed by its allies, and that the settlement was, in the words of the nationalist poet and journalist, Gabriele D'Annunzio, a, quote, mutilated peace, unquote. In fact, Italy had done quite well from the Treaty of Rapallo, 1920, in which it was granted Trentino and South Tyrol, Trieste, Gorizia, Zara, and several islands in the eastern Adriatic. Some Italians also resented their exclusion from the allocation of the German colonies in Africa. And in March 1919, the Italians independently decided to invade and occupy Antaria in southwestern Turkey. Moreover, anger at the peace agreement provided the circumstances for the rise to power of Mussolini and the fascists in Italy. As for the Habsburg monarchy, the Austrian half lost Bohemia to the Czechs, 
who joined the Slovak cousins from Hungary in a Republic of Czechoslovakia, which contained a significant minority of Germans. In the south, they lost the Slovenes, who with their Croat cousins from Hungary joined with the Serbs in the newly created kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, later to be renamed Yugoslavia. The Austrians also lost their Italian lands south of the Alps, including Trieste, their main port on the Adriatic. Austria was reduced to a German-speaking rump. The Habsburg was so discredited that not even the Austrians wanted anything to do with them. They initially tried to join the new German Republic to the north, but this was forbidden by the Allies. The Hungarians, meanwhile, lost not only the Slovaks and Croats, but also the province of Transylvania, which joined Romania. The Turks also lost most of their territory, as the new states of Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Palestine and Transjordan were formed under British or French control. The result was the birth of many of the Middle East problems that exist to this very day, including in Palestine, where during the war promises had been made by the Allies for both an Arab state and a Zionist Jewish state, and also over the arbitrary nature of the borders drawn for Iraq, Syria and Turkey. In addition, as well as the Italian invasion of Antalya, the Greeks staked their claims in Thrace and regions in Anatolia, especially the cosmopolitan port of Smyrna, today Izmir, where there was a substantial Greek minority. Popular unrest among the Turks brought to power Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who at the end of the war had found himself in command of the remnants of the Ottoman army. From his base in Anatolia, Mustafa Kemal launched a movement of national resistance against the Allies and peace terms they sought to dictate. He succeeded in driving the Greeks out of Anatolia and threatened to do the same to British forces occupying the Straits. After a war of three years, Ataturk freed Turkey from foreign occupation and established his own nationalist parliament in Ankara, the new Turkish capital. Finally, in a peace conference in Lausanne in 1923, he obtained the new frontiers he demanded for Turkey, thus deserving intact the Anatolian homelands and a foothold in Europe, which included the city of Adrianople, today Edirne. The Greek population of Smyrna were brutally expelled, and disputes between Greek and Turkey over possession of islands in the Aegean continue until today. The Armistice of 1918 and Treaty of Versailles are remembered in Britain and France as the end of war and beginning of peace. However, writes the historian Robert Gilworth in his book The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End, 1917-23, for those living in many places of Eastern, Central and South Eastern Europe in 1919, there was no peace, only continuous violence. Violence there was ubiquitous, as armed forces of different sizes and political purposes continued to clash across Eastern and Central Europe, and new governments came and went amid much bloodshed. Between 1917 and 1920 alone the continent experienced no fewer than 27 violent transfers of political power, many of them accompanied by civil war. 
The most extreme was the Russian Civil War of 1917-23, to which claimed well over three million lives. In addition to the conflict between national groups after the war, Europe's slow and uneven march towards democracy was reversed. New political movements, notably communism, Nazism and fascism, came onto the scene, prepared to use violence to implement their extreme policies. The First World War brought ruin upon the whole continent and an end to a century of European hegemony over the rest of the world. The entry of the United States in the war and its tipping of the balance to the Allies was a watershed moment in global history, and by 1945 it had become a global superpower. Meanwhile, the great empires of Russia, Germany, Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans were destroyed. The Tsar of Russia was murdered with his family by revolutionaries, while the emperors of Germany and Austria-Hungary were driven into exile, along with the regiments of German princes. The last Ottoman sultan, Mehmet VI, departed to spend his last days on the Italian Riviera. The collective trauma of those affected by the First World War produced varying reactions. Some blaming nationalism for the horrors brought to mankind through their support behind the League of Nations, hoping for a world of increased international cooperation. On the other, there were many whose views became hardened by the conflict, who came to the belief that only military strength could provide them with protection. Certainly, the peace, prosperity and stability of the Victorian age and the optimism of France's turn-of-the-century Belle Epoque were things of the past. People mourned for many years after the war the colossal, tragic loss of life and commemorated the so-called lost generation. The carefully tended war memorials, the continuing acts of remembrance, the growing interest in visiting the battlefields, all these demonstrate the way the First World War still resonates deeply with us even today. My name is Card Rylett and you've been listening to History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. Dear listeners, after more than 250 episodes and nearly 10 years, we've reached the end of my project to relate the grand sweep of European history from the ancient Greeks to World War I. It's taken a lot longer than expected, as I kept on finding fascinating new topics I wanted to tell you about. I've really enjoyed the research and the storytelling and hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you so much for your words of encouragement over the years. It's meant a lot to get your feedback, your ideas, your praise and the corrections when I've got something wrong. I very much hope to continue with the podcast in some way in the future, but I can't say when at the moment. There are other features of European history I'd love to tell you about, but not for now. I need to take a break. Thank you so much for joining me in this great journey. I wish you all the best, and always feel free to get in touch by writing to Carl, C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net, or look out for my Facebook page. Best wishes, and goodbye.